Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. What we know about the great wars between Carthage and Rome, we owe largely to one of the great Greek historians of antiquity, Polybius of Megalopolis. He is to the Punic Wars what Herodotus is to the Persian Wars and Thucydides to the Peloponnesian Wars, not just a chronicler, but an analyzer and explainer of events. Polybius was born around 200 BCE and died sometime after 118. A prominent citizen of the powerful Greek city-state of Megalopolis, Polybius spent his youth pursuing a promising political and military career. However, in 168 BCE, Megalopolis sided with Macedonia in a war against Rome. After the defeat of the Macedonians at the Battle of Pydna, Polybius was deported to Rome as a political prisoner. Polybius remained in Rome for 16 years. Fortunately for history, he came to know and even love Rome, not least because he developed a close friendship with Publius Cornelius Scipio Aemilianus a member of one of the greatest Roman aristocratic dynasties and the adopted grandson of the general who had led Rome to victory in the Second Punic War. During this period of exile, Polybius researched and wrote much of his histories. He states the goal of his work in a rhetorical challenge to his readers. For who is so worthless or indolent as not to wish to know by what means and under what system of polity the Romans in less than 53 years have succeeded in subjugating nearly the whole inhabited world to their sole government, a thing unique in history? In the remarkable rise of Rome, Polybius argues, the Punic Wars were the pivotal events. Polybius was superbly well-informed. Through Scipio Aemilianus, he had access to the highest circles of Roman society and government. He was also diligent, industrious, and generally fair in his judgments. By the standards of ancient historical writing, we can hope for no better source. But his friendships with Roman aristocrats did color important aspects of his work. Again and again, he betrays a clear bias in favor of members of the Aemilii and Cornelii dynasties. A far more serious problem with Polybius's histories is that we do not have most of it. Only six of the history's 40 books have come down to us intact. As a result, Polybius's account of the Punic Wars breaks off after the Battle of Cannae. For the battle's crucial aftermath and the remainder of the Second Punic War, we must turn to the Roman historian Livy, who wrote in the late 1st century BCE. Livy's narrative uses Polybius as a source and appears to follow the Greek historian closely. Long before the First Punic War, Roman Carthage had extensive contacts. Roman and Carthaginian aristocrats cultivated ties of friendship, sometimes spanning generations. Trade and commerce linked Italy with Carthage and its domains. Traces of Roman amphorae, pottery jars that stored export products, have been found in sites from North Africa to eastern Spain. In Rome, there was a quarter called the Vicus Africus, where Punic merchants apparently resided. Formal relations between the Carthaginian and Roman republics were spelled out in three treaties. Polybius dates the first treaty to 509 BCE, the second to 348. Both treaties treated Carthage as the greater power, Rome as the upstart, the new kid on the block. The treaties regulated commerce, but with more restrictions on the Romans, who were forbidden from trading in regions the Carthaginians regarded as their exclusive markets, such as Libya, western Sicily, and Sardinia. 
The main condition on the Carthaginians was a requirement in the Second Treaty to hand over to the Romans any city in Latium they seized militarily. The Third Treaty was different. In 279 BCE, Carthage and Rome agreed to help each other in case one of them was attacked by Pyrrhus of Epirus. Although nothing came of it during the actual war with Pyrrhus, this treaty reveals the relations between the two powers were friendly enough they could unite against a common enemy. The Romans and the Carthaginians would come to blows because of events in Sicily. The Greek city-states of eastern Sicily habitually fought wars against each other. The Carthaginians were often drawn into these conflicts either to defend or expand the Epicratea, their province in western Sicily. The Romans were newcomers to Sicilian affairs. In 271 BCE, Rome had conquered Regium, the Greek city-state on the Italian side of the Sicilian Straits. In 289 BCE, the end of the latest war between the Greeks and the Carthaginians left unemployed a band of Campanian mercenaries who called themselves the Mamertines, or the people of Mamers. Mamers was the Campanian name for Mars, the Roman god of war. The descriptions in our ancient sources make the Mamertines seem something like an ancient outlaw biker gang. They roved around Sicily, raping, plundering, and causing general mayhem. Eventually, they seized control of the strategically located Greek city of Messana, modern-day Messina. The Mamertines massacred or drove out Messana's male citizens and took their wives for their own. Using Messana as a base, they then terrorized eastern Sicily for decades. In 264, the Mamertines made the fatal mistake of going to war against Syracuse, the most powerful Greek city-state in Sicily. Syracuse's ruler, the tyrant Hero, defeated the Mamertines in a pitched battle. Facing annihilation, the Mamertines then made an utterly devious decision. They sent embassies to both the Carthaginians and the Romans, pleading for aid against Syracuse. According to a number of ancient Roman and Greek commentators, Carthaginians and Romans had both long been preparing to go to war with each other. No less a figure than Pyrrhus of Epirus had reputedly observed that Sicily made an excellent wrestling ground for the Carthaginians and Romans. The Messana crisis was just an opportune moment and a convenient excuse. Some historians today continue to follow this line of argument. However, there is no evidence at all to support it. Instead, the events that followed the Mamertines' call for help followed a pattern of action and reaction that then led to an uncontrolled escalation. The Carthaginians acted first. Their general in western Sicily, Hannibal, slipped a small force into Messana. We have precious few further details about Hannibal's action, and we know nothing at all about his motives, but I suspect it was quite likely he acted largely on his own, without the prior knowledge or approval of the authorities in Carthage. If so, then Carthaginian intervention in the Messana crisis was one of the first examples of what would become a common dynamic of imperialism down the ages. A local military commander or local colonial official taking an initiative that later drags in the home government. Before we turn to the Roman reaction to the Messana crisis, I'd just like to make a brief digression to talk about Carthaginian names. Elite Carthaginian men tended to have names of religious origin. So Hannibal meant glory of Baal, Baal being one of the chief Phoenician deities. And similarly, Hamilcar meant Melkart is gracious, Melkart being another Phoenician god. Unfortunately for us, there appear to have only been a very small number of these names. To make matters even worse, most Carthaginians did not appear to use common surnames or family names or even nicknames. 
This podcast will therefore at times be an unavoidable parade of Hannibals, Magos, and Hanos, each difficult to distinguish from the others. For what it's worth, the ancient sources themselves seem at times to have had a hard time telling individual Carthaginians apart. When the Mamertines' request for aid reached Rome, it provoked a heated debate. On the one hand, the Romans viewed Carthaginian possession of Messana, right across the straits from Regium, as a decisive step in Punic domination of Sicily and a dire threat to the security of southern Italy. On the other hand, aiding brigands like the Mamertines was a serious injustice. The consuls pressed for intervention, but the Roman Senate remained deadlocked. The consuls then took the dramatic step of presenting the Mamertines' appeal to the Comitia Centuriata, the most important of the citizen assemblies. Although the citizens were then war-weary after the numerous campaigns to conquer southern Italy, they were ultimately swayed by the consuls' promise of what Polybius euphemistically dubs great and obvious benefits. In other words, war booty. The citizens authorized consul Appius Claudius Codex to take an army to Messana. This vote to intervene demonstrates how the internal dynamics of the Republic, the fierce competition for glory among the aristocrats, and the greed for plunder of the citizen soldiers drove Rome to war. But war against whom? At this stage, the Romans clearly decided that their main enemy was not Carthage, but Syracuse. When news had reached Sicily that the Romans had decided to intervene, the Mamertines had thrown out the Carthaginian garrison. The Carthaginian court of 104 had crucified Hannibal for letting himself be evicted from Messana. The Carthaginians had then allied with Hero of Syracuse. Together, the Carthaginians and Syracusans had besieged Messana. Appius Claudius crossed the Sicilian Straits with his army. In two separate battles, he defeated the Carthaginians and the Syracusans. The Carthaginians retreated back to their strongholds in western Sicily. Instead of pursuing the Punic forces, Appius Claudius marched on Syracuse. However, the city was powerfully fortified, and his siege of it failed. In 263 BCE, the Romans decided to double down on their efforts by sending both consular armies to Sicily. This Roman decision indicated that the war on the island had become the Republic's main priority. For their part, the Carthaginians wrongly calculated that Hero and Syracuse could do most of the fighting against the Romans. They concentrated their forces to defend the Epicratea, their province in western Sicily. An even more serious Carthaginian miscalculation was that they failed to use their powerful fleet to block the Sicilian straits and prevent the consular armies from crossing. Once in Sicily, the consuls immediately marched on Syracuse. With seemingly no help coming from his Carthaginian allies, Hero decided to switch sides. He made peace and allied with Rome. Hero's alliance with Rome finally galvanized the government of Carthage. It went on a mercenary hiring binge in Iberia, Gaul, and northern Italy. These fresh forces were concentrated around Akragas, the second largest Greek city-state in Sicily, and a Carthaginian ally. Yet this powerful Carthaginian army made no move to challenge the Romans and their tightening grip on eastern Sicily, nor did the Carthaginian navy attempt to block the Sicilian straits. This passivity suggests that the Carthaginians were still focused on defending their Epicratea. Even now, after coming to blows with the Romans, Carthage did not want a large-scale war with Rome. For their part, the Romans chose to interpret the Carthaginian build-up as the beginnings of a counterattack to retake Messana and Syracuse. 
Furthermore, the Roman citizens had not received any of the great and obvious benefits from the war so far. They therefore pressed for an aggressive offensive campaign. In spring 262, both consuls and their armies once again were sent to Sicily. The consuls immediately marched on Acragas and besieged it. The Carthaginian general Hanno waited for seven months before finally challenging the Romans to battle. The Romans had two consular armies, totaling 40,000 Roman legionaries and Italian allies. Hanno had a formidable host of 50,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and six war elephants. But Hanno deployed his forces badly, placing his elephant corps behind his first line of mercenary infantry. He then proceeded to command them with striking ineptitude. After a long struggle, the Roman legionaries ground up and broke the Carthaginian mercenaries. They fled into the elephants, which panicked in turn and stampeded into the rest of the Carthaginian army. After routing Hanno's army, the Romans captured Acragas. They subjected the city to a harrowing sack, with the legionaries taking away considerable booty. The Romans also sold the city's 25,000 inhabitants into slavery, further filling the pockets of the victorious consuls and their troops. With the sack of Acragas, the Roman citizens finally had the war booty they had craved from the beginning of the Sicilian adventure. But the fall of the city led to an even more momentous decision. As Polybius described it, when the news of what had occurred at Acragas reached the Roman Senate, in their joy and elation, they no longer confined themselves to their original designs and were no longer satisfied with having saved the Mamertines and with what they had gained in the war itself, but hoping that it would be possible to drive the Carthaginians entirely out of the island, and that, if this were done, their own power would be much augmented, they directed their attention to this project and to plans that would serve their purpose. The Senate's decision appeared to be based on the calculation that Rome's newly established dominance of eastern Sicily could not coexist with the Carthaginian Epicratea in western Sicily. The fall of Acragas also galvanized the Carthaginians to finally make effective use of their fleet. Beginning in 261 BCE, Carthaginian naval squadrons harried the Roman-held parts of Sicily. More importantly, they launched devastating raids on the coasts of Italy itself. These raids persuaded the Roman Senate to take the unprecedented step of building a fleet of the state-of-the-art war galley of the day, the Cincirem. The building of Rome's new navy is one of the dramatic highlights of Polybius's histories. It would make a thrilling montage scene in a Hollywood action epic. Roman shipwrights had never built a Cincirem before, and they had no idea how to go about it. Fortunately, a Carthaginian Cincirem had run aground off Regium. Using this ship as a model, the shipwrights built 100 kinkerems in just 60 days. To provide crews of rowers, the Romans turned to two sources, their coastal allies and those citizens who could not afford to serve as legionaries in the army. To train these rowers before the ships were ready, the Romans built mock ships on dry land and had the crews sit in them to practice rowing. But the Romans knew their fleet was green in timber and green in crews. In a sea fight, employing the traditional tactics of maneuvering, ramming, and boarding, they would be no match for the much more experienced Carthaginians. According to Polybius, an anonymous Roman came up with an ingenious solution. A boarding bridge, about 12 meters long and suspended high above a galley's prow by a system of pulleys and weights. Attached to the end of the bridge was a long iron spike, reminiscent of a bird's beak. This gave the bridge its name of Corvus, or Raven. 
When a Carthaginian kinkiram closed in, the raven was dropped on it. The iron spike pierced the enemy deck, and the raven locked the Roman and Carthaginian galleys together. Roman legionaries then sprinted across the boarding bridge and surged onto the Carthaginian ship. Thus, a sea fight was transformed into a land battle. The Romans fitted ravens and all 100 of their kinkirems. The Roman fleet challenged the Carthaginian navy off Mylae on the northern coast of Sicily. The Carthaginians, commanded by an admiral named Hannibal, were so overconfident they raced out in their galleys without bothering to maintain formation. The ravens were a deadly shock. The Romans grappled and boarded Carthaginian ship after Carthaginian ship. At the battle's end, the Carthaginians fled after losing 50 of their 130 galleys. The Roman decision to take to the sea represented the final escalation in the war. Both sides now became fully committed to winning the conflict. They mobilized all of their economic resources and manpower for the war effort. The war was still focused on Sicily and its surrounding seas. The fighting was amphibious. The armies fought for control of the coasts and vital ports. The navies transported troops and supplies and supported sieges of the major coastal strongholds. On land, the Romans had their way. The legions won every major battle. The Roman armies advanced inexorably westward, conquering virtually all of the Carthaginian Epicratea. More surprisingly, the Romans also prevailed at sea. The Roman fleet defeated the vaunted Carthaginian navy in two great battles, the first in 258 at Sulci off Sardinia, after which the Carthaginian crews crucified their admiral Hannibal, who is most likely the same Hannibal as at Mylae, and in 257 off Tindarus on the north coast of Sicily. The Roman navy squadrons and privateers raided Sardinia and increasingly the coasts of North Africa itself. But the Roman advance stalled before the last three Carthaginian strongholds in western Sicily, Panormus, Drapana, and Lilibium. If inept on offense, the Carthaginians proved highly resourceful and tenacious on defense. Their land forces parried every Roman attempt to take these strongholds, and their fleet managed to keep them supplied. Yet another Hannibal, nicknamed the Rhodian, became famous on both sides for his ability to speed through the Roman naval blockade in a specially designed kinkerem. With the war in Sicily a quagmire, the Romans made yet another fateful strategic decision. They decided to take the war directly against Carthage by invading North Africa. Both consuls and their armies were assigned to this operation. More importantly, the Romans mobilized their largest fleet of the entire war. 330 kinkerems, manned by 140,000 rowers, sailors, and marines. The surviving Carthaginian strongholds on Sicily controlled the island's sheltered northern coast. The massive Roman invasion fleet was thus forced to sail and row along the much more exposed southern shore. This would soon have disastrous consequences. At Cape Echnomus, the Roman armada encountered a Carthaginian fleet of 350 kinkerems, with 150,000 crewmen and marines aboard. The ensuing Battle of Cape Echnomus remains the largest naval battle in history in terms of the number of men engaged. We ought to pause for a moment to let that fact sink in. It testifies to how both republics were now committed to total war. At Cape Echnomus, the Carthaginians once again tried to employ the traditional war galley tactics of ramming and boarding. But once again, they had no answer for the ravens. 
By the end of this brutal battle, the Romans had sunk or captured 94 Carthaginian vessels, while losing 24 kinkirams of their own. The demoralized Carthaginians scattered to their home bases, leaving the Romans in total command of the seas. The Romans landed their armies near Carthage. They ravaged the countryside, taking thousands of slaves and freeing thousands of Roman and Italian prisoners. Then, an order arrived from the Senate to withdraw the invasion fleet and one of the consular armies with all of the booty and freed prisoners. The remaining army of the consul Marcus Regulus continued the campaign. At a battle near a town called Addis, Regulus and his consular army smashed the army that the Carthaginians had mobilized to defend their home territories. Even worse for Carthage, their Libyan subjects, oppressed by years of heavy taxation and relentless conscription, rebelled. Facing both military defeat and internal rebellion, the Carthaginians asked for peace terms from the Romans. These terms were presented by Consul Regulus, and they were harsh. The Carthaginians were to surrender Sicily and Sardinia and also pay Rome a large war indemnity. Historians have been highly critical of Regulus, arguing that the consul could have convinced the Carthaginians to surrender with more moderate conditions. But Adrian Goldsworthy points out that Regulus's approach was typical of Roman war-making. The Romans fought until their enemies were utterly defeated and accepted their domination. Anything less was not victory. Regulus's terms were unacceptable to the Carthaginians, who resolved to continue fighting. They poured resources into hiring a new mercenary army. Among the new mercenaries was a Spartan captain named Xanthippus. In an unprecedented move, the Carthaginian authorities appointed him to command the army. Xanthippus restored the morale of the Carthaginian troops and trained them thoroughly before leading them out to fight. In the spring of 255 BCE, the Carthaginian and Roman armies met on the flat Bagradus plain, south of Carthage. Both were even in numbers at about 16,000 each. Xanthippus, however, was vastly superior in cavalry and had 100 elephants. In the ensuing battle, the Roman legionaries pushed back the Carthaginian mercenaries, but a well-timed charge by the elephants bowled them over. Meanwhile, the Carthaginian cavalry drove away their enemy counterparts and then swept in behind the Roman infantry. Regulus's army was encircled and slaughtered. Only 2,000 survivors managed to escape to the Romans' base on the coast. Regulus and 500 others were captured. For winning Carthage's only major victory on land of the entire war, Xanthippus received a substantial bonus from the Adirim, the Carthaginian Senate. The Adirim then dismissed him from service. Even at a moment of crisis, the Carthaginians were unwilling to place their army in the hands of a foreigner. The Romans later spread a rumor that the Carthaginians assassinated Xanthippus, a typical example of Punic treachery. In reality, the Spartan captain went to work for the king of Egypt. The annihilation of Regulus's army was only the first calamity suffered by Rome in the spring of 255 BCE. A great fleet of 355 ships under the command of the year's two consuls set out to reinforce Regulus. The Romans crushed the Carthaginian fleet off Cape Bon, capturing no less than 114 ships out of 200. But on arrival in Africa, they found that Regulus had already been beaten and captured. The fleet evacuated Regulus's troops and set course for Sicily. Off Sicily's southern coast, the fleet ran into a great storm. All but 80 of the ships sank, 
and an almost unbelievable 100,000 Romans and Italian allies drowned. With the disastrous end of Rome's North African adventure, the fighting shifted back to Sicily. In 252 BCE, the Romans managed to take Panormus, the most important Carthaginian city on the island. But Lilibium and Drapana continued to hang on. In 249, the Carthaginians appointed a group of energetic and highly able commanders for their Sicilian forces. One admiral named Adurbal took command of the fleet at Drapana. He began an aggressive policy of raiding the Italian coasts. The Roman consul, Claudius Pulcher, took half of Rome's fleet to attack it. Pulcher attempted to surprise the Carthaginians, but was detected, and in the ensuing Battle of Drapana, heavily defeated, losing 93 of his 123 ships. The great Roman writer and politician Cicero later blamed Pulcher's defeat on a spectacular act of impiety. As was customary, the Roman consul's flagship had carried a cage of sacred chickens. Shortly before the battle, when Pulcher learned that the holy poultry were refusing to eat, which was considered a bad omen, he declared, if they won't eat, then let them drink. He then flung the chickens overboard. The more prosaic cause for the Carthaginians' only major naval victory of the war was that Adderbal had turned the tables on Pulcher and fought a battle where the Carthaginians were finally able to make full use of their superior seamanship. But even worse was to befall Rome. Off the storm-wracked southern coast of Sicily, Adderbal's equally talented colleague, Carthalo, lured the other half of the Roman fleet into an exposed position. When a tempest approached, Carthalo and his squadron ran for the cover of Cape Pacinus. The Romans were exposed to the full fury of the elements. Out of 120 kinkerems and 400 transports, only two kinkerems survived. The Roman losses between 255 and 249 BCE beggar the imagination. Some 550 ships had been sunk and more than 200,000 men drowned. These would have been staggering losses for any society in any period of history. But the population of the entire Italian peninsula during the First Punic War was just 3 million people. When the Roman censors counted the Republic's male citizens in 247 BCE, they found 50,000 fewer citizens than the last pre-war census. The Carthaginians were also in trouble. Their manpower losses were perhaps only a little less severe. But Carthage's treasury was now teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. To keep their war effort going, the Carthaginians tried to borrow 2,000 silver talents from King Ptolemy II of Egypt. This was an enormous sum, equivalent to 52 metric tons of precious metal. The Egyptian king declined. The Carthaginians tried to negotiate an end to the war, but the Romans refused. The only real result of these peace negotiations was a famous Roman myth. The Carthaginians had the captured consul Regulus take their peace offer to Rome. Regulus promised the Carthaginians he would return regardless of the outcome of the negotiations, but instead of presenting the Carthaginian terms, Regulus urged the Senate to fight to the end. He then kept his promise and returned to Carthage. The Carthaginians stuffed Regulus into a small box lined with spikes, and he eventually died from exhaustion and sleep deprivation. Long after the Punic Wars, the Romans held up Regulus as a model of civic virtue and devotion to duty. The last years of the First Punic War amounted to a grim struggle of attrition between two increasingly exhausted powers. 
Polybius memorably compares Roman Carthage to two fighting cocks who had slashed each other to ribbons but were still in the ring, still trying to muster up a last bit of strength to deal a death blow. The Romans remained determined to drive the Carthaginians from Sicily. The Carthaginian strategy seemed to be to just hang on in the hopes that the Romans would eventually give up. In 247 BCE, the Carthaginians made a final change of commanders on Sicily. The talented, successful pair of Adarbal and Carthalo was replaced by a new general named Hamilcar. The ancient sources do not explain this command change. Dexter Hoyos speculates that it was the result of internal political struggles within the Carthaginian state. Hamilcar took command of the field army in Sicily. He proved to be an inspired choice. An extremely skilled tactician and inspirational leader, Hamilcar pursued an aggressive policy of harassing the Romans from his impregnable base on Mount Hyrcte. Dexter Hoyos speculates that Mount Hyrcte is modern Mount Castellaccio. Hamilcar's goal was to prevent the fall of the last Carthaginian strongholds on Sicily, and also weaken the enemy until he could at last defeat them in pitched battle. Hamilcar's fast marches and sudden raids earned him the nickname Barca, or Lightning. Polybius considers Hamilcar the finest commander on either side of the entire war. However, he never enjoyed the resources to overcome the Romans. It was the Romans who made one last, ultimate effort their own resources were now also almost gone. In 242 BCE, the Roman Senate raised a loan from the leading Roman citizens under the condition that they would only be reimbursed in the event of victory. The money was used to build one last fleet of Kinkirems. The Carthaginians were forced to respond by mobilizing a final fleet of their own. But the former masters of the western Mediterranean had fallen so low that their crews and rowers were raw and no match for the Romans. At the Battle of the Aigadas Islands, in 241, the Roman fleet destroyed the Carthaginian armada. The Carthaginians no longer had the wherewithal to put any more ships to sea. The Carthaginian Senate crucified the defeated admirals and ordered Hamilcar Barca to open peace negotiations. The Roman consul's peace terms in 241 BCE were almost as harsh as those offered by Regulus in 256. The Carthaginians gave up all of Sicily. The entire island, except for the city-state of Syracuse, became Rome's first province outside the Italian peninsula. In addition, Carthage was required to surrender all the islands between Sicily and Italy. Finally, Carthage was to pay the Romans 1,000 talents in silver immediately and then another 2,200 over 10 years. These sums were enormous, and the Romans intended them to be so crippling that Carthage could never challenge Rome again. Carthaginians had no choice but to accept these painful terms. For both Rome and Carthage, the First Punic War had been a struggle of unprecedented length and scale. Neither side had ever fought a war of such duration, nor deployed such huge forces on both land and sea. For Carthage, the war's length equaled those of all the wars it had fought in the 4th century BCE. For Rome, the war forced it to fight outside Italy for the first time, as well as pushed it into becoming a major naval power. Time and time again, both sides had raised new armies and fleets to replace those that had been lost. The end of the war saw Rome supplant Carthage as the leading power of the western Mediterranean. Carthage was largely reduced to just an African state. In the next part of our podcast, we will track Carthage's impressive recovery. 
Most importantly, we will see how that recovery set the stage for the rise of Rome's great nemesis, Hannibal Barca.